This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSE published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. I bought paint yesterday on the way home, and it brought me to a different location than I'm used to, which is always kind of strange. As I was driving home, I saw a sign that said, Lexington Battlefield. What? I pulled over, I parked my car, and then I just sat in Lexington Battle Green for like 20 minutes, just thinking. Did you get out of the car? Or yes, did you just yes. No, there I because, sat oh, okay. there. I sat there and it was just so cool because, you know, I, you know, I, I teach about, you know, the, the, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Uh, I talk about it, but I never actually sat there and just like was. And it was just so cool. It made me realize that history is everywhere. Isn't it interesting that I often find that in our own communities, we forget to like go to the historical sites and museums that are all around us. But the second we travel to somewhere that's else, what we do. that's what we do. And uh, I mean, it's the same here. We, you know, my friends live right next to where JFK was shot, like three blocks away. And it's not like I ever go over to the JFK museum. I was there like as a tourist, like 20 years ago. But since I've lived in DFW, I have not been back. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right about, you know, being somewhere else and like that's when you see history. But sometimes you don't. It wasn't like I was playing the Pokemon Go game last year. And (laughs) my favorite part of Pokemon Go is that there was always the little Pokeballs or I hope I'm saying that right. They're always at these like random markers uh, in my community that I had no idea that this was a World War One monument until Pokemon told me that there was a, I don't know, a Pokeball there. And so then I was just kind of hanging out and looking at these monuments. Yeah, like kind of engaging in history in my own community. I love it. I love those moments when you're just kind of struck being like, holy cow, this is really cool. And I think it speaks to sometimes how so much of what we do in our classroom is so dictated by standards and curriculum that it's just easy to forget to, to look right under our noses at the history in our own cities and to look at the history that's all around us. And so we brought in a guest today who's going to maybe help us think about learning history in non-classroom spaces. So we'd like to welcome into the podcast, Lisa Gilbert. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I should point out Dr. Lisa Gilbert. Congratulations. This is very recent. You just finished. I did just finish. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. So I come out of a museum education background. I directed school programs at the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis. And before that, I facilitated student tours at the McCord Museum of Canadian History in downtown Montreal. So I'm really used to thinking about the ways that students learn about history outside of the formal classroom. 
As a researcher, starting with museums, my interest branched out to many kinds of interactions that students have with history. You know, we engage with claims about the past in so many different ways, from movies to video games. I'm particularly intrigued by the messages that we pick up along the way as we do so. Yeah, Michael makes a lot of claims about the past, and sometimes I'm not sure if they're true or not. (laughs) I think that I would be an excellent cave person. Um, particularly my, like, I'd be a good gatherer, not so much with the hunting, but I'd be an excellent gatherer. At least that's what I assume. Well, there are anthropologists that say that we should really call them gatherer hunter societies because gathering accounts for about 80% of people's caloric intake in similar societies today, right? That's what people often tell me. And that's why they're like, oh, well, you should do both. But I would actually major in gathering. I like the concept of foraging, and so I feel like I would be good at it. And this is an example. None of this is verifiable, and I really can't tell if if Michael would be a good gatherer in the past. But well, we can be good be- gatherers today, and that's what I've really enjoyed about uh, being able to approach social studies from a research perspective is that I've been able to get interested in many different kinds of sites that students engage with history. So I haven't had to limit myself to just one place. I appreciate you bringing that back into the conversation. Thank you for saving us. So Lisa, tell us about the like the context you've worked in. Did you always work in museums? Have you worked with schools and had partnerships with schools? I, I've just always personally just found that those relationships between those institutions, like you know, historical museums or community centers, they're just not strong enough, I feel like, often with our social studies classrooms and just schools in general. Can you tell us a little bit about like the work that you've done in those areas? Sure. So the bulk of my career has been spent in museums so far. I was at the Missouri History Museum for about six years, and I was at the McCord Museum in Canada for a year before that. I would say I would agree with you, though. You know, a lot of times the ways that teachers make use of museums uh, doesn't live up to the potential of this space. And a lot of times that's because teachers are bringing assumptions about what it means to learn meaningfully in a museum uh, based on what it means to learn meaningfully in a classroom. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, when you look at research in museum studies about learning theory, uh, there are very different ideas about what it means to have a meaningful experience there. So a lot of times museum educators have one set of beliefs about what a good museum experience would constitute for students and teachers have another one. My favorite example of that is scavenger hunts which I was on, you know, a mission to get rid of pretty much when I worked at the Missouri History Museum. Uh, Scavenger hunts are about gathering little bits of trivia in a museum space, you know. But most people, when they go to a museum, they're not trying to pick up little bits of information, you know. I don't know about you, but when I go to a museum, I enjoy walking through the galleries, seeing what looks interesting and ignoring what doesn't. Sometimes I read, sometimes I don't. I'm with a friend, we talk about things that have nothing to do with the content on display. We maybe stop by the the cafe, we definitely stop by the museum store. And when we go home, we congratulate ourselves on having a good cultured experience that day, right? That's not wrong, that's how people engage with museums. But for some reason, when teachers bring students to museums, it becomes, you know, we're gonna march them through the galleries, we want them to read everything, we want them to, you know, sit there with a scavenger hunt and spend their time writing out answers. I've never seen an adult visitor ask a museum for a scavenger hunt to make sure that they make the most of their museum experience. I would like to point <laughs> out though, I think we should call it a 
a hunt scavenger because you really do more hunting than scavenging. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that is a such a great point, Lisa, because that you know, until you said that, I probably fell into that category you're describing. Because as a teacher, I think I would have thought in terms of schooling, right? Schooling education, which doesn't always have a lot to do with actual learning. And I would have wanted my students, I would have wanted to know, what are they taking away? Like, what knowledge are you taking? Read that, read that thing on the wall. I'm pointing right now, but it's a podcast. And I think I would have struggled with that. But the way you described going to the museum is exactly what I do. You know, I spend like half my time reading some stuff and then something interests me. And I actually get on my phone and we'll read more on that because I'm that big of a dork. And then I have to go get Michael and stop him from gathering all of the uh, I try to all take the it all. <laughs> it's also very interesting, I think, that you bring up that it's not just gathering those bits of information. Everyone's kind of going into the museum with kind of their own thing that they're looking at. And then I feel like having that conversation about what they took out of it. And then you can kind of have like a, like a neat collaborative conversation instead of having teachers just simply – you know, go find what year JFK um, went to, I don't know, uh, Harvard or something, you know? That's <laughs> yeah, but cool where's idea. the where's the accountability? Where's the accountability? Well, How do we and know we learn something? <laughs> that's the problem, right? We want, to, we want to know that a museum experience was valuable, that it was worth the time and the effort that it took to get students out of the school building, yeah. right? But our definition of valuable might not be as rigorous as we claim that it is. When I think about museum experiences that had a lasting experience on me, right, mm-hmm. uh, they were often revealed by moments that I would remember years and years later. And those are real impacts, but they're very difficult to measure. Right. And I think that's probably the, one of the bigger problems in education, too, is the trouble in measuring valuable learning, right, mm-hmm. just in general. And that's why we have such terrible systems, because we keep trying to solve that problem. I'm not trying to solve it, but policymakers are, and they come up with these awful systems that, you know, often are very reducible to specific things. Yeah. One of the reasons that I love museums, that I love learning about history outside of the classroom is that people engage in it for an intrinsic good, that they see it as just intrinsically interesting. There's something about it that we just are in a pure love of learning sort of space. And I find that's very special. And we we seem to worry about whether or not students like history. I think students love history. I don't think they like their history classes all the time. But when you look at the enthusiasm that they bring to other kinds of experiences that nevertheless engage with history, you have to conclude that there's there's something real there. So Lisa, we're having you on today because you wrote a media review for Theory and Research and Social Education, and we found it so interesting that we wanted to have you come on and talk about it a little bit. So as you're talking, talking to us about how students learn history outside the classroom, could you start by telling us a little bit about what media you reviewed for TRSE? Sure. So the piece that I wrote for TRSE looked at another kind of space where students engage with history outside of the classroom. Instead of museums, I wanted to look at video games. So I looked at a series called Assassin's Creed. I love Assassin's Creed. Isn't it wonderful? That's why I bought a PlayStation. (laughs) 
It's I, I, that's also why I bought a PlayStation. <laughs> but you know, it's a huge franchise. It's so popular with students. It's popular with students not just in high school or middle school, but increasingly down into elementary school ages as well. I think the name puts some parents off in particular. But when you find out more about it, you know that they've made it. They've made their name basically on their valuation of history as a selling point. One of the things that's interesting about Assassin's Creed is that the main characters tend to be different people than you might expect. So, for example, you experience the American Revolution not from a British or American viewpoint, but rather from a Native American perspective. So I argue that when students play the games, they're implicitly learning that history is more diverse than they often get the impression of in a typical social studies class. That's that's really cool. I've I've been thinking a lot about how intersectionality is a great lens through which to think about history, just to constantly ask those questions, who's included, whose perspectives are here and who's who's not. For those of us that are not veteran Assassin's Creed players or maybe <laughs> have never even played before, could you tell us a little bit about the game? Oh, where to start? It's a huge series. It's been developed over about nine main titles, and there's a number of smaller releases as well. It has huge uh, fan communities online. There are young adult fiction books that have been written about it, graphic novels. There's an encyclopedia. So trying to distill it down into <laughs> a few sentences is kind of tricky. Um, the basic premise of the series is that there's a technology that's been developed that allows people to experience the genetic memories of their ancestors. Your main character goes back in time um, through those memories. I'm not explaining this well at all. How would I say this? You're part of the nope. Brotherhood of Assassins. <laughs> right. Do we want to do the whole like... <laughs> You're there to fight the, the evil uh, Knights Templar. Yeah, which is like the, the fictional framing that goes around it, right? Like, yeah. so we could see that. So, but it, it gets so complicated because there's this science fiction aspect to it. There's this like framing aspect of like the fictional part around it. How do you want to say it? Because you're not really traveling in time. Like, yeah, if you're traveling through memories, obviously you have control over the memories and you're kind of, you're there to sometimes protect, sometimes to, sometimes protect someone, uh, sometimes to solve uh, mysteries. Um, like there's side quests, like there's the French Revolution one, which is so cool. And you actually get to go to the Notre Dame Cathedral and it looks just like the Notre Dame Cathedral because they spend so much time like trying to get it perfect, like hours and hours and hours. Like I forget the exact amount of hours, but there's like hundreds of hours mm -hmm. trying to get it perfectly. Before I went on my trip, I actually played that, ver that, uh, that, that again, just so I could see it. It's so cool. And when the French Revolution went, like you're doing all these things, you're like, holy cow, this is the French Revolution. This is Maribel. And I'm totally learning about it. I mean, I know. I'm sorry. I get really excited about it. But you play yeah, with Michael, history. You're, this is like the most excited you've been yet <laughs> on an episode. <laughs> but you know what? Like students get that excited about it, too. And I conducted a study where I interviewed high school students about their experiences playing Assassin's Creed. The main thing that they wanted to talk about, like, and like, don't get me wrong, we geeked out a lot about like our favorite moments in the games and like um, neat experiences that we had had playing them. But like, the main thing that high school students wanted to talk to me about with Assassin's Creed was how it increased their empathy for people in the past who were different from them. That they started to see history from different viewpoints that they hadn't considered before. Interesting. That's because a pretty big they, lesson in history. 
it is a pretty big lesson in history. You know, it was this chance to relate to characters that, like I said before, are maybe different characters than what you would expect in a history class. I wonder sometimes if the history classes are just presenting what we almost expect to hear about. We expect to hear about the American Revolution as an American versus British conflict, but Assassin's Creed comes in and tells students, wait a minute, like Native Americans were there too. Like, you know, enslaved people were there too and starts having them play stories from those kinds of perspectives and students get fascinated by it. So can I ask this question? Because I think uh, uh, something we'll come back to later is, is just thinking about the ways that this connects to what the formal curriculum we often have to teach. Do you see like direct connections where like, for example, students could analyze Assassin's Creed as a way of understanding history? Well, you know, I think it's a, it's a big question. I think the main thing that I learned from the work that I've done on Assassin's Creed is that we so often fragment students into just seeing the part of them that's in our classrooms every day. Um, when I interviewed students about their experiences playing Assassin's Creed, many of them shared moments when they used what they had learned from the games in their social studies classes. But none of them had told their teachers where they got the information. Mm -hmm. They thought that they'd be made fun of or that they wouldn't be taken seriously. And I think it's a shame because it's a missed opportunity for a conversation. And like, what does it mean when students think they need to hide a part of themselves in our classrooms? We limit the ways that we can connect with students when we limit social studies to just what happens when you read and discuss a textbook. So places like Assassin's Creed represent instances where students are enthusiastically engaging with history. I think we should encourage that enthusiasm and use it as a springboard for deeper engagement. When I was uh, in high school, I went to a Catholic high school and I had to take religion. Well, I took religion class every year. And for one of them, the, there's uh, I had to talk about Joseph's dreams. Joseph is from the Bible who has an amazing technicolor dream coat, which is actually how I totally knew his dreams because I know musicals quite a bit. <laughs> And so I was able to actually write, you know, actually, I just wrote the lyrics to one of the songs, which totally answered pretty much all the questions in song in verse, which is always great. But it's so interesting how I know with Hamilton, a lot of my students are, are bringing that to the table. I wish they would also get Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson because that musical is really fun. But there's all sorts of different ways that students are kind of like engaging in history in their personal lives that, yeah, it's trying to find that that way to get in. Like there's a lot of television shows or movies. I know Dunkirk's coming out that I know. I imagine a lot of my students are going to be going to see because we have actually talked about Dunkirk in, in years past. And so, yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, history, as I say in Hamilton, is happening in the greatest city in the world, um, which is wherever you are right now. <laughs> Sometimes how I end is, is not the most, uh... <laughs> you know, but it's everywhere. Yeah. It's like I see history all the time. So, Lisa... Are there other spaces that you've investigated or thought about places where students can learn history in addition to Assassin's Creed and museums? Well, I also conducted a study where I interviewed high school actors on the experiences they had in a high school musical with historical themes. So I interviewed the main actors in a production of Aida about the kind of conclusions that they drew about the past as a result of being in that musical. That study ended up going into a direction about gender and uh, their, like, under, their perspectives on gender in the past and gender today. Uh, I was reading Sam Weinberg's Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, 
And that was one of the things he talked about was just how difficult it is to really place ourselves and try to think from the perspectives of people from the past because so many things are different. The ways that people understood gender, the ways that people interacted with each other, even just, you know, um, for example, uh, the deference that some people were expected to show in society to others, things that can seem very foreign to us. And so, but plays and games allow potentially a different way to see those types of scenarios in ways that maybe are harder to get at um, just inside a history classroom. I don't know. Do you see potential for that type of historical thinking that's a, a bit more grounded in the experiences of the day? I don't know if it's thinking as a historian so much as it's thinking like a public historian. You're not going to develop the skills in historical analysis by playing Assassin's Creed that you would from taking a really good history class. Like, mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that, right? But I do think that Assassin's Creed speaks to who we are as a human being in a way that is harder for students to get from analyzing historical documents. I think there's an immediacy to connecting with a character, to enacting that character's story across a video game, or, you know, through, I'm just imagining historical fiction books that are, that are meaningful to people as well. Like, these are different things, right? Like we don't need to try to make one thing into the other, but we do need to think that they're both valuable. Right. I think that's a really good point that there's not one method of getting at understanding history. We can do it in many methods, even though what happens in school has often conformed to some of the very same methods, whether it's memorizing information out of textbooks, which is a pretty low level to to now the DBQ, which is seen as a way to understand history. But of course, like you say, has its own limitations in what the ways we can connect and understand that type of experience. When I interviewed students playing Assassin's Creed, many of them drew a contrast between their social studies classes, which focused a lot on analysis and, and reading, um, and their experiences playing the games, which they associated much more with an emotional connection with history. A lot of them, I think, were hungry for a sense of human beings in history, not ideas that go across a page, but human beings like us. And I think that's something that we can get well in non-classroom spaces that might be harder to bring into the classroom. I don't know. It kind of makes you think of like, as a classroom teacher, realizing that there's these other really enriching experiences where students can have that more, you know, empathetic building episode. The question, of course, is like, how can I, as a classroom teacher, actually bring that to my class? I can't make them all go home and buy a PlayStation to play Assassin's Creed. But how can I somehow take Assassin's Creed or Hamilton or Aida and, and bring that type of experience into my classroom or honor the experience in my classroom? I think it's about what does a student's experience in Assassin's Creed or in Hamilton that they find so compelling? Why are those spaces compelling? Is it just because video games are addictive? I don't think so. I think it also has to do with wanting to see historical figures as human beings. 
there's also the question of what non-classroom spaces do well that classroom educators can learn from. You know, museums, movies, video games, these are free choice environments, meaning that people generally freely choose to spend their time in them. So they're in competition with other things that you could also be doing with your time. The best ones have gotten good at understanding why history matters to people and developing ways of making history meaningful to the widest possible range of people. There's a lot there that we can learn from in terms of making classroom-based social studies more compelling to a wide range of students. I like that. I think that's a good way to think about what can we learn about what's not happening in our classrooms because we have a lot to learn. And I just always talk about like, you know, our classrooms can become these spaces where we're just locked in them for long periods of time. Right. And it's easy to forget what the world looks like. And that's why this people always say in the real world. And I wonder what the hell, where the hell are schools? I always want to <laughs> pop their speech bubbles because in my fake world, I can pop speech bubbles, but I can't. <laughs> so I assume that I'm in the real world. It's also interesting that history is not one thing. When you think history, like you think history class, your mind might have just went to a textbook but it should incorporate a lot of other things. Like when I want to learn about a place, I don't just, you know, I mean, I do read about it, but there's also those other experiences that you can do or other ways to kind of get at it. History's not one thing and nor should our texts be one thing. I'm using text as a more of a general phrase, not simply having a diary from a different perspective. It's also your game as a text, that musical as a text, that episode of community, um, which really actually exemplifies, um, the Hobbesian versus Lockean, that's also a text. And so, I don't know, expand your mind. Expand your mind indeed. <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. I really think you gave us a lot to think about and we really appreciated it. Where, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I'm on Twitter at Gilbert Lisa K. Cool. I tweet my way through museums pretty often where I take a lot of different pictures and I give my perspective on that museum's exhibits and experience as a former museum professional. So I've collected a number of my museum visits into what Twitter calls moments and people can go through them there too. That's really cool. You live tweet that museums. I love it. I do live tweet museums. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning and playing games. If you're doing something creative in education or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. It helps people find this podcast. Heck, you can write a five-star review about Assassin's Creed and post it on there as long as you get it under <laughs> Visions of Education. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. Now at the vision of education. Now at the vision.